In recent generations, there's been a notable shift in the number of women professors in the U.S. and around the world. The challenges and how they've evolved after the music. Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through meaningful conversations, we explore the life of the mind and questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your preferred podcast service, and check out our upcoming events at upperhouse.org. Hello, and welcome back to Upwards. I'm your host, Dan. In Upper House's newest podcast, With Faith in Mind, and check it out and subscribe if you haven't already, I sat down with the executive director of the American Scientific Affiliation, Janelle Curry, to talk about her work in the context of our series, Christian Education at the Crossroads. In our conversation off mic, Janelle shared about a passion project she's been working on. That's the history of women in the ASA. Our producer, Jesse Koopman, was intrigued and invited her to share in another conversation about it here. Janelle Curry obtained her PhD in geography from the University of Minnesota. She taught at Central College in Pella, Iowa, and at Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Her areas of research have included environmental policy, religious worldviews and the environment, and women in leadership. She's been the executive director for the ASA since 2022. We hope you enjoy this Upwards conversation with Janelle Curry and Jesse Koopman. All right. Well, Janelle Curry, welcome to Upwards. It's so nice to have you here. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, she actually is going to be a second time podcast guest with Upper House. We had her uh, interview for our other podcast with Faith in Mind recently about Christian higher education and her role in that capacity. Uh, we wanted to bring her back because she's done some really interesting studies regarding women in the ASA recently. And when she shared some of that background information with us uh, for our other podcast, I knew that I wanted to bring her on to Upwards and get a chance to sit down with her and hear a little bit about the story of women in academia as a whole and specifically in the ASA. Um, I want to start off with some basic background, Janelle. Can you tell us, A, I know you, you have a little bit of given uh, in the intro what you do for the ASA, but can you tell us a little bit about what the ASA is? Right. The American Scientific Affiliation has been around for about 82 years, and it is a professional society of scientists, social and natural scientists, who are people of Christian faith. So it's really a community. It has fellowship. It has a scholarly um, outward kind of mission. And then also, it's really about the professional development of the members. So helping them grow in their faith, helping them grow in their scholarship, and helping them grow professionally. Well, that's awesome. And you said it's, it started quite a while ago. What was the original intent behind it? So uh, professional associations usually have a mission or purpose statement that they're grounded in. Was, was this the same concept that it started with, or did it start more informally, or, or how has that mission changed since its formation? Yeah, it's really been pretty consistent in that it's really about trying to bring rigorous science in conversation with, um, with Scripture and our understanding of our faith. And, and it's really born out of this, this challenge of being somebody who lives in some ways between two worlds. So when you go to church, often people don't understand 
your science. And when Mm -hmm. you go to work, if it's a secular setting, they don't understand your faith. So how do you bring those together and deepen your understanding of those two things in conversation with each other and be and are faithful to your faith in that process? Yeah, absolutely. We've done a number of different things with science and faith on this podcast, and it always like amazes me when I hear about people talking about how it's actually harder often to be a scientist in church than it is to be a Christian in academia. I think that there's a lot of truth to that. And of course, it always depends on which church you're Mm -hmm. in, but you do sense this freedom at our annual meeting when people come together and they're able to use the full language of their faith and science together and have a community that understands that and can also challenge them. It's always nice to be in affinity groups where people have a similar perspective on some level so that way you can support each other. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about organizations like the ASA or other professional organizations with faith where you have specific issues that you struggle with because of the role that you fill in life, whether it be professionally, socially, familially, or otherwise. But to be able to come together with people that understand your unique position and also share your faith, I think it's a, it's a wonderful gift. And I think it's cool that you get to be a part of that. It's a wonderful mission and a wonderful organization. And it's just, it's been great to be a part of it. Well, awesome. Well, Janelle, so we brought you on specifically because of the research that you've been doing about women in the ASA. But before we get to the, the women in the ASA, I want to talk more about the overall story of women in academia. So especially in higher education, I know for a long time, um, and from reading some of your materials and, and watching some of your materials, there was not always this big uh, option for women in academia. And it didn't really start until, when would you say women really got involved in higher education in America? Well, I think women have attended higher education in certain segments of the population. But certainly, even when I was in college, I maybe had one or two women faculty members. So when you think about that, you know, there were really no no role models for me. Thankfully, mm-hmm. I had just a wonderful undergraduate advisor that encouraged me. And he became very important in that and explicitly encouraged me as a woman to pursue higher education and also to pursue my gifts. And I also came from a family that did that same thing and that my mother was a high school guidance counselor. So she encouraged me to pursue, to pursue, you know, my gifts as well. Well, that's wonderful. So tell me about what those gifts are. How how did you identify in your scholastic career that this is something you really wanted to pursue? Well, I think when I, as an undergraduate, when I graduated, I planned to go have a career where I went overseas and did third world development or developing world, Mm -hmm. you know, kinds of initiatives. And so after my undergrad, I went and did a term of service with the Mennonite Central Committee, but it ended up that it was in Louisiana doing scholarly work for a Native American tribe because they were considered non-existent. There was no record of their existence and they Mm. had no treaty. So as I did that and I met several people who were scholars down there working in Southern Louisiana, 
I just thought, gee, this is interesting. I think I want to go to graduate school in geography. And again, I thought, in order to get a master's degree, in order to go overseas to do development work. But in grad school, I found I was intellectually stimulated. I really liked ideas tied to change strategies and that I was really good at that. So I, so I think it was coming to the realization of that. And then I have to also say that as an undergrad, I did a summer internship as a community organizer. And I remember thinking, you know, I don't think this is for me. So trying things out and then sensing when you're in your sweet spot, I call that. That's awesome. Thank you. And I, I love that narrative of, of experimentation, exploration, and not just assuming that you've got one path in life. Um, so right. I, I love that we talk a lot about at Upper House embracing the journey and exploration. And I think that's fantastic. Um, so one thing I want to ask with that is you paint a beautiful narrative of how that process went for you, but I bet there were hiccups along the way. Um, I know one of the reasons why you started the study for the women in the ASA is talk about the the barriers and the challenges women have had in academia. Can you share some of your stories of barriers and how you got through them? I th- I think that there are different barriers at different stages in life, and so as I reflect back on my journey and and the research that I've done, it's helpful to do the research and then reflect on, oh, that's what was going on then. Mm-hmm. And that's what I was experiencing because yeah, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? You can't always. Yeah, tell exactly. And and that when I was living out a certain stage in my life, society was different than it is now. So how much was me and my circumstances, and how much was it society at that point in time? But you know, even um, in graduate school, there was a sense in which it was something very new to have women going to graduate school and the expectations of you, especially if you got married, was that you would not continue, Mm -hmm. that you would drop out. So there were those kinds of expectations when it came to graduate school. And then when I was first teaching too, there, I remember when, when I had my first child, that you could see in some ways a sense of relief on the part of the students that, oh, she could be a professor, but she can also be a mother. (laughs) And so you saw the tension within them of trying to figure out these different roles. And And I would say the first position where I taught, one of the reasons I really was ready to move on was tensions over maternity leave, because I was the first generation of women to actually have babies who were, who were teaching at a college. And um, there were a lot of tensions around that. A group of us had to then work very hard to construct a maternity policy because there really was no policy. And so the women felt very vulnerable in terms of trying to negotiate their personal circumstances. Yeah. And I mean, that's still a prevalent issue today. I know even at UW here on UW campus, we talk about uh, maternity leave for women and how 
that's kind of crazy to think about this, but there are lots of institutions around the country that do it better than we do in terms of acad- yeah. academia. Um, so getting equal rights and getting full paternity leave and maternity leave, I think is, is something that's still an issue today, sadly. Well, and I think for me too, it's been a journey of growing up in a, in a family and a church situation where women were affirmed and then going into a more, um, evangelical community for college where it was the first time that I realized that I was supposed to have limits because I was a woman and working through that. So then my first job, I went to a place that had less of a church connection, but then ran into the issue of maternity leave. So trying to navigate the faith community and the secular community and what it means to be a woman has been a challenge. For me, and for me, what it meant is at some point I decided I needed to be at a place where I had other women who were scholars and were mothers and people of faith. And so that's the point at which I went to Calvin College. And it was just an incredible place to have a peer group, just like the ASA, where you can talk about science and faith, a peer group Mm -hmm. where you could talk about all of those things together. That's wonderful. And I think that's a perfect segue into your research on the women in the ASA. Uh, I would love to just start off with a little bit of background on it. What spurred you wanting to do this research to start with? Yeah, that's a good question. I think I was just curious, curious about it because I am a scholar. And then Mm -hmm. you go, here's all this data. And we, we don't even know what the history of women is in the ASA. So it's about uncovering stories in many ways because you feel like you can't you can't initiate change unless you understand where you came from Absolutely. and the stories of the women. So and in the ASA we have what's called the Christian Women in Science affiliate group too. And so we had had discussions around them and as more of a social scientist I always want to know what was the reality rather than you know, sound bites or statements. I'm always looking for something to substantiate that and help me understand what actually happened rather than what people are, you know, think statements that they make when we really have nothing to substantiate it. Yeah. So the the curiosity comes into play. And I want to just ask this because I always find it fascinating that you're a geographer. Did your love of geography or history with geography come into play in any way in how you pursued the research or about your curiosity in approaching it? I've, you know, I've done a lot of research using the same kinds of methods. So I'm not mm-hmm. sure that, I, and most of my research has been on human land relations, but it's still involved looking at, for example, farmers in Iowa from different Mm -hmm. ethnic and religious communities and interviewing men and women differently to see if their their views of the world are different. So in some ways, I've had some gender aspect to my study, um, studies in the past, but not to this extent. I've just ended up, because of those skills and because of my lived experience, taking on a few of these topics because I've been curious about it. 
Well, that's awesome. So tell us about the process that you underwent. Where did you get started and, and how has it gone? Yeah, the process started with Dr. Dorothy Chapel, who is a longtime member of the ASA and a retired dean for this, the natural and social sciences at Wheaton. And we've been friends for a long time. And so we we've had just been talking about this. So right before COVID, I said, I'll come visit you. The archives are at Wheaton, you see. So the ASA archives. Mm-hmm. And so we started there by spending a few days just going through the archives and just to see what was there and what it would take. And that's what started the process. And we started analyzing the data and trying to figure out what would be a way to explore the history of um, women, looking at membership lists, looking at the list of women who had become fellows, which is kind of an honorary status, and at what point in time, um, and reading a lot of the minutes from the the executive council over the years. So that's where it started, and then it just sort of grew from there, although with fits and starts, because we got busy doing other things, and then we would come back to it. Yeah, and I think there's a pandemic or something in there too. It's yeah, point. exactly. And I think I moved to <laughs> to Buffalo, New York, for a while to work. Yes. So uh, when you were first getting started in the research, what are some of the things that you found out early on that fascinated you that made you wanted to continue the research? Oh, that's a great question. I would say it's usually by looking at data. So right away, I put together a spreadsheet that showed women at what point women became fellows of the ASA. And of course I look at that and then my framework is, okay, at what, so there weren't any at this period, but then there started to be women. And so then wanting to think about, so why, why was this happening when it happened? Thinking about the whole history of feminism in the United States and how did it fit within that? So trying to understand that, that structure. Yeah, that and makes a lot of where sense. It fit in. So that leads me to a couple questions. Uh, let's let's start with this one. So, a when was the first member, a female member, in the ASA? What what time period were we looking at there? First, the first woman member was 1949. So that started in 1941, but actually there were several women who were involved in the annual meeting, even the program of the annual meeting prior to becoming members. So it was quite early that they were, they were present, you know, several and the women that were present were primarily from several different Christian colleges. So early on, they've been, they've been in the ASA. That's great. And then there was a question that I wanted to ask too, when I listened to some of the content that you shared with me in preparation for the interview today, uh, I remember you telling me a story about your mom and a, and a book that she had uh, read and kind of in, in a similar time period was really just changed. And yeah. I think you said something about her becoming a feminist by reading this book. Yeah, I think if you if it's very helpful to have read some history uh, and women of the United States, because what you realize is women were very involved in the workforce during World War II, 
and even before that, but after World War II, there was a very much a conservative move because the men came back from the war. And so my my mother was in that era that she got married in the early 50s and had children. And she grew up very independent because her father died when she was nine. And so when she had small children, it was very hard on her to mm. to stay at home and do those things. And she was struggling with that. And she read The Feminine Mystique, and it changed her life. She realized that this was a stage. She and my dad decided that she needed to start back and go to graduate school to get a master's and have a plan for where she wanted to go. And then by the time my younger brother was in first grade, she started working and she was much happier with that balance in her life. Yeah. And that was pretty revolutionary for the time, right? Yeah, it, it was revolutionary, but there, you know, she had other women who went to college with her, but the expectation was in that era, post-World War II era, was that you that you didn't work and you stayed home. And she and my father felt, you know, the, one of the reasons they were drawn to each other is their commitment to Christian mission. And so they had been hmm. planning to go overseas for missions. And so that was the trajectory they were on. So staying home um was fine as a stage, but she needed also that outlet of ministry of some type. Talking about women in history, who are some of your role models as in a Christian academic um, and somebody who wanted to pursue that? I know you talked about your mom specifically, but were there other examples of women in science uh, that you really looked up to when you were early in your career or you look up to today? Yeah, I really, that I don't think there were any role models for me in terms of being an academic. You know, even my mother was a high school high school guidance counselor, which mm-hmm. was much more acceptable. I think always my role model has been my grandmother, who my mother's mother, who would tell us the story of her father pulling her out of school before she finished eighth grade and how upset she was. And it was who she was, not what she did, that was the role model. So, you know, so she didn't finish eighth grade. She cleaned houses, yet she was ready to go anywhere for a new experience. And she never would ask, like, why are you doing this? And why is it taking so long? You know, she was just on in it for the ride. And she lived to be 101, <laughs> you know? So, so I, ride. I really, yeah, I really think it was her example of never saying, you know, the neighbors are questioning why you're doing that. She was never worried about what people said about about her she was so inclusive of other people of all different 
status. And so I think the freedom within your family of origin is is just so important in determining how how much women have to carry with them that they have to overcome and I was really blessed to have an extended family of women who encouraged rather than worried about it and my father my father never asked me you know why are you doing this you need to do this you need to do that nope he never asked that question well that's great to have uh, allies in life too that don't necessarily look or exist in the same space as you do in all capacities yeah. but they have the ability to appreciate you for who you are i think that's incredible right. and i think we we all need that um have you had powerful allies uh, in life or have you seen powerful uh, figures um, in the ASA that were really pushing this forward, men or women? Um, yes, there are always people like, as I read through all the ASA newsletters for 50 years, it was clear that one of, one of the men who was a, named Walt Hearn was the editor of the newsletter for many years, and he was a voice for women. And you saw him grow over time, right? So at first, he, he's trying very hard in saying things that now you read it and you go, oh, please, Walt, don't say that. But <laughs> you saw him as an advocate. You saw him mm -hmm. make arguments, biblical arguments, you know? And so, yes, and that's where... It's really about partnering with, with men to make sure that everybody thrives. And that's why I always think it's really about fulfilling an organization's mission and not yeah. Um, yeah. forgetting about all the gifts that we could draw upon in the body of Christ. Well, that's awesome. Uh, one question I'd wanted to ask you that's related to that is about the notion of, of faith in the ASA. Uh, and where, so we talk about faith and academia kind of mingling in the ASA and that being one of the primary reasons for its existence. Wh where do all of the members come from? So I know you talked about how a lot of them initially came from Christian colleges, or at least the, the female contingent did. But is it still largely from Christian colleges or is it largely from public institutions now? What is the, the makeup like it's in terms of that both earlier on and now? Yeah, I think always it's been a range. So it involves industry. We have engineers who are working in industry. We have medical doctors. We have nurses. We have, and then there's always been a strong academic component, which has been both Christian institutions and secular universities. It's really a mix of all of those things. It ra raises the question of, why were those earlier women from Christian colleges? Mm -hmm. Maybe it was because they had a greater sense of mission, because during that era of time in general, it was very difficult for women with PhDs to even get jobs in secular universities. Because, again, the men were coming back, they were taking those jobs. So women that had been teaching during World War II often were pushed out. So that's a great question. I'll have to think about who those early women were. And well, and now that I think about that, like one of them yeah. 
was German-born immigrant. So you did have several people who were from Europe who got their PhDs there and then came to the United States. So in some ways, they were coming from a different cultural background than American evangelicalism. Uh, So Janelle, uh, now that we've heard a little bit about your mom's story, and then we touched on uh, briefly a little bit of your story earlier, but can you share with me a little bit more in depth uh, about how being a woman in the various roles that you've held uh, has either been challenging or rewarding and, and just how that's looked for you? I think it's one of the re- most rewarding aspects has been the kind of community that I've had with other women who are on the journey. And so just a rich set of friendships over the years that you develop that continue on. So I just had a conversation the other night with somebody who I've gotten to know because she was a provost at the same time I was of a different institution. And so you connect with those people and then you think up projects to do to nurture the next generation. So meaningful relationships. And like I said at Calvin, to be able to be at an institution and have women peers who pushed me as a scholar and shared stories of our both all being mothers was awesome. I think, mm-hmm. you know, I, I remember a point at time where when my older daughter was in fourth grade, we started a mother-daughter book club. <laughs> And we ended up with this mainly people, the mothers were connected to Calvin. And they were, so they were scholars of any number of backgrounds and the, the daughters were, didn't know each other as well. But that book club went until they were 16. Oh, wow. And I can remember one of the last times we met, we had a faculty member from Calvin come and talk about Florence Nightingale because she had written a chapter on Florence Nightingale. That's so cool. And yeah, reading it. And then we ended up talking about all the different barriers of the different generations and how life was different from each one. And I could just remember thinking, life does not get richer than this. (laughs) Being able to be with colleagues, talk about interesting topics, talk about your grandmother and be in it with your daughters. It was awesome. Yeah. I mean, just uh, to do that and be able to pass that, not just the books and and not just the stories along, but to practice exploration together and practice liberation through exploration together and to demonstrate that to the next generation has got to be so rewarding. Yeah. And uh, another instance sort of of that the richness of all of the lives together was coming back from a sabbatical. I had my two daughters with me in New Zealand and on the way back, my older daughter goes, so where are we going on our next sabbatical? (laughs) And I said, you aren't going, I'm going by myself. (laughs) But you know, that sense for me being a woman in academia, who's a mother and all, it's that sense of, adventure together. Mm-hmm. That's been great. And then there are the challenges. Yeah, let's right? talk about those. 
Yeah, probably a variety. I think for young faculty women who are in Christian institutions in particular, but it may be true of secular ones too, it's very hard for them to get authority in the classroom. And so one of the things I've done over my career, having gone through that, Mm -hmm. is to work with women on strategies to get authority in the classroom. Because you have cases where the young men in the classroom are not used to women with that kind of authority. So that's, that's a challenge. You feel like you have an extra weight on you um, that you carry around in order that you have to overcome in order to be successful. Yeah. So I, I, I mean, A, I'm really sorry that that just isn't great to have to have dealt with. Um, and I hope that I was never that hard on any of my female teachers or professors in the past. Uh, but I, I also want to ask, so you've been through this and you've talked about how you work on encouraging other people and you've, you've learned some stuff. What things could you share with people that are maybe struggling with that? Well, I, th- I think with that, you know, even to, this is, I'm a, a scholar to, to draw on the literature of what we know about that. So one of the things we know is you, you need to not use other people's authority like, well, this person says that this is the way we should do it, but rather speak from your own authority. Mm-hmm. That out of my expertise, I know that this is the way we have to do it. So just ways of framing it and um, engaging techniques that help you along the way are very, very important. And maybe even putting the issue on the table. I know I remember one, one very prominent scholar at an institution saying she had to put a note on her door that said, I am not your mother, <laughs> right? <laughs> because there's this expectation mm. that you're supposed to be motherly and mm. professional too. And so again, women are navigating those multiple expectations. And, and so yeah. it, it involves more work to try to negotiate those kinds of boundaries. That's fascinating. Uh, is that something that is discussed a lot in the ASA? Uh, do you have groups where you you work on things like this together? I think probably more of what the discussion amongst the women in the ASA because they're out in the a lot of them are in in work environments mm-hmm. is more how to manage the the differences between the work environment and their church. So it's very hard because, you know, you can be an engineer that's, that is a really high level engineer in the work environment in a corporation and then go to church and people don't understand or even know about that part of you. And so I think, I think in many ways it's can be the church that is more challenging for women than the work environment at this at this point in time. Yeah, and I think that holds true in a lot of categories where we we meet people in certain contexts and we see them with a certain 
identity and we brand them in a certain way based upon that context and the identity that we prescribe to them when we first meet them. And I think it can be really hard to break that boundary for a lot of people in a lot of contexts, but I imagine that's certainly one of the huge ones that are being experienced there. Yeah. Mary Stuart Van Leeuwen and her husband wrote a book called Gender and Grace, and it talks about how the, the fall resulted in men aspiring to power and women being enmeshed in relationships. And I think that that structure has been helpful in understanding things. So I'll just give you an example from my own life. Please, I was just going to ask. Yeah, I have an older brother who's a medical doctor, right? (laughs) When my younger Mm -hmm. brother got married, at the rehearsal dinner, my younger brother introduced my older brother as, here's, this is my brother, Dr. Curry. And this is my sister, Jan. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, goodness. (laughs) And my aunt just about fell off her seat. But, um, but what that speaks to is we see women in relationships, right? That that's mm-hmm. the pri- primary thing we think about. And with men, our default is to think of them in terms of their careers. Yeah. Right? Both of these things can be positive and negative. So I gave mm-hmm. you an example of where it's kind of negative. But the positive is the richness of my life, right? Absolutely. Because I am in relationships. <laughs> yeah. And for, honestly, for me, it's it's very backwards because I don't define myself so much by my work. Uh, and I, I struggle with that sometimes too, because a lot of people ask me when I'm getting together socially, what do you do? Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. I don't want to tell you about what I do. I mean, I'm happy to talk about because I love yeah. what I do, but what what I define myself as isn't my work. Yeah. The question is, is this generation different? They're unwilling to commit to work that doesn't allow them to have the relationships. And that may be a healthy thing. Something to chew on for sure. I don't think you and I are going to figure that one out today, but definitely one for us to explore. Yeah. Uh, And just, just for the frame of reference too, I'm, I'm not that young. Uh, I don't know what you define as this generation, but I just turned 40 a couple weeks ago. So yeah, that would um, still be, uh, I'm I'm (laughs) above that. (laughs) You might have a couple of years on me, Janelle. Yeah. Uh, Anyways, getting back to the uh, ASA concept within that too, tell me about how that story or that narrative has maybe shifted in your research as you've seen the progression of women in the ASA. Uh, what what kind of things have you noticed that have shifted in that research? Well, I think through the doing of the research, I you start to ask more questions and you begin mm-hmm. to understand more of the nuance. So one of the things I did, I discovered, which maybe I would not have anticipated, is that the history of women in the ASA very much parallels the history of women in professional societies in general. So hmm. I think I went into it anticipating that perhaps the ASA, because of its ties to the evangelical Christian church, would be way behind. And, you know, the first woman president of the ASA was in the first decade that these other professional societies um, had women in that role. So it create it just is a reminder that the church and all of us 
sit within a cultural framework and that we have to be aware of that so that we work towards being faithful and we we try to, as hard as we can to separate that from what the culture is telling us. So the culture was conservative after World War II and that that's the era the ASA started and so that was the same as other professional societies. The story's somewhat the same. Yeah, so that is interesting. Yeah, a couple other things I think I learned through this is how import, important community is. So when women really, the numbers of women began to increase in the ASA, it was after the establishment of the Christian Women in Science affiliate. So it was about being able to form groups where people can share common experiences with each other. That it's that sense of belonging that becomes very important. And, and then all of a sudden, the number of women went way up after that. Yeah. So t- tell me a little bit about that history. Um, I, know, I don't know if you have a, a, your slide deck with you from your presentation or any statistics you could share with us, but um, tell us a little bit about the, the shift that you experienced as, as the ASA progresses. Uh, wh- what would we see if we were to look at that data with you? Well, if you looked at the data, you would, you would see numbers that pretty much overall model the same statistics as a lot of other professional organizations, but I would say the ASA was late in in addressing maybe some of the structural issues that got in the way of, of greater involvement by women. What are some of those uh, structures? Well, I would say um, first, first, one of the things that was required to serve on the executive council of the ASA, which is now called the the governing board, you had to be elected a fellow. And so there were fewer women that had been elected fellows because you had fewer women, but also a process that tended to be who you knew, right? And men tend to know each other, women tend to know each other. Mm-hmm. So the barrier to leadership, um, one of the barriers was actually getting enough fellows and then, you know, getting enough women who were willing to be on council and run for council. So one of the things that the ASA did was it removed the requirement that you had to be a fellow in order to try to break that glass ceiling of sorts. We had a few women before then, but then that opened it up. So now it's just the majority have to be fellows. And another one was that the ASA, in order to get on executive council, you had to run against somebody. And so the first time a woman ran against a man, but the woman didn't win because, of course, the, you have that culture of the men know each other better. Mm-hmm. And so then what they did in the ASA is they started running women against each other in order to ensure that one got on there. So, but then of course it was only one woman that got on there for a while. So, so it's barriers like that, which is really about, you know, who, you know, who you hang out (laughs) with. And so those are the kinds of cultural barriers. And then, you know, the creation of Christian women in science was just really essential and 
a couple of conferences where the women, it was a national conference on women in science of faith. Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to pause right there, Janelle, because I bet some of our audience doesn't know what women in science is. Can you tell us a little bit about what yeah. women in science is? The Christian Women in Science is an affiliate of the ASA. So it's a group that you don't have to be just an ASA member. It's other women, too, who are on this in this group. And we have Zoom um, talks and discussions. And then at the ASA meeting, we we have gatherings, too. So we had a dinner last year um, at the ASA meeting. So it's sort of a an affiliate of the ASA, but it's just women in science. And, you know, so some of the important things along the way have been a few of the women held a conference for women in science of faith at Eastern College. And so some of the women at that conference were graduate students who've gone on to do incredible things. Like Deb Harzma, who's the head of BioLogos, was in graduate school at that time. And Jennifer Wiseman, who works for NASA, was in graduate school at that time. So so just finding that community of encouragement just totally transforms the landscape. And in terms of the ASA, the Christian Women in Science, since its existence... The number of women in ASA has gone from 10% of the membership to 30% of the membership. And last summer at the meeting, half the people there were women. So it just totally transformed things. Yeah, that's fantastic. I remember in your presentation that you gave uh, to uh, the Christian Women in Science, uh, you also talked about a language barrier that existed early on. Um, Yeah. And to, to me, those things exist not just as a language barrier, but they, they represent something meaningful. And I would, I would love it if you would share a little bit about the, the language that was involved in and the shift that was made early on in talking about who uh, the, the people are there. I mean, I, I can't remember exactly what the terms were used, but it was something about men, uh, an organization for professional Christian men, right? Right, right. So early on, I mean, and the, again, this was the era Right. Probably all professional associations use this kind of language where the ASA was an association of men of faith in the sciences, essentially, even though there were women that were attending. So there was the language of the organization that had to evolve over time. And it came with the sensitivity of the feminist movement in the 60s as people started to become more more aware of that. The use of more inclusive language, so rather than referring to all all people as men, you know, just using inclusive language had to take place. And then the, the, the naming of individual women from, you know, Mrs. John Smith to, you know, name giving them names and also credentials if they had a doctor's degree rather than you see how that relational piece has been culturally yeah going back to your wedding story right yeah yeah that's right that's right so that that's been a journey and i would say the asa language changes over time have reflected the society Underneath and over time, of course, then you've had more visibility 
of women for their scientific accomplishments rather than their relationship with somebody. Well, awesome. And I think that leads me to my final little uh, topic here that I wanted to explore. And that's just where do you think we are now and where do you think we're going? So I know some historians and historical uh, minded studies don't like to conjecture past their, their research. But I, I'm curious, as your perspective, as somebody who's leading in the ASA and somebody who's uh, leading in the Christian uh, women in science uh, space, uh, do you feel like we're doing well today? And do you feel like there's room for growth? And if so, where? I, well, I would say my greatest fear is that women will leave the church because of the contrast between their work environment and the church environment in terms of understanding who they are and the gifts that they have. So I guess that's one of that's one of my fears. So at our winter symposium for the ASA, we had Walter Kim from the National Association of Evangelicals, and he said, you know, the issue of science is a gospel issue. If we don't deal with science with integrity, we will lose the next generation. Mm-hmm. And I feel the same way with the issue of women. If we don't start recognizing that they have multiple gifts, and they can be moms and they can be engineers, mm-hmm. you know, we are going to lose those women. And when I did research on women in leadership within evangelical organizations, I found a lot of the women leaders I interviewed were actually in the process of changing churches because this disparity between being a leader even in a Christian higher ed institution and their experience in the local church had just become too great. They had to find a different church that where they could express their the fullness of who they were. Sort of like mm. how I found at Calvin with women who were scholars, who were mothers, who were, you know, I'm all of these things. Yeah, I think that's that's great. Are there things that we can be doing in the church that would provide hope for that to change? Well, I mean, I think within the church settings that I'm in, mm-hmm. I feel like all of those things are recognized and it's um, a free, a very freeing environment where I'm recognized for all, everything I bring. I think that those churches are the ones that are going to thrive in the long run because they're using all of the gifts of the body. Um, I don't know. It's hard in a divisive era because even talking about any subject in many contexts is very difficult. Um, so where's the hope? Good question. I mean, I'm, I'm hopeful because I look at my experience early in my life and I look where I am now in my freedom. And the number of women who are in these roles. So I, 
you know, the hope is maybe I get hope from looking at the trajectory and understanding the path that we've been on and and realizing that we've come a long way, but we need to not stop. We need to continue to articulate the need for all the gifts. And that's that's really the hope is in men and work women working together for the kingdom and being mission focused rather than worrying about the who. Let's just do the work. Let's just do the work. I think that's a, a wonderful message to end on, Janelle. Thank you so, so very much for your insights, uh, the study that you've been working through and sharing uh, the lessons that we can pull from that, uh, as well as just sharing your time and expertise and your story with us. Very good. Thank you for the great conversation. I'm going to go go back and think on some of these things. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your favorite podcast app. Also, be sure to check out our upcoming events on upperhouse.org. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Hosted by Dan Hummel, music by Micah Bear, audio engineering by Jesse Koopman, and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Please follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW.